I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. What did I just say? All right, good. I'm glad. So you guys got voice. I should give you all my notes, and then you say them, and then I'll be okay. Daniel chapter 9. We are moving into the most critical part of the prophecy that was given through a vision from the Lord delivered by Gabriel, uh, the angel of the Lord there at that time. And, um, but uh, two weeks ago, we had that wonderful music group that came and I gave them a lot of time to play and stuff. So I try to squeeze in, in a short amount of time, a whole lot of notes. And I began to realize I didn't do you all any good by doing that. So I'm going to go in back and kind of teach pretty much the main points of what we started with and then conclude the whole of verse 24 because that's what we're looking at tonight. Do, do we need some lights turned off so you can see the board there? Because it's, it seems a little bit... Uh, oh, there you go. That, that helps a lot. Okay. So... Um, Anyway, we're going to focus our attention on the things that this prophecy is all about, what is going to come out of uh, this, uh, this prophecy given. And um, so, let's read verses 20 through 24. And again, these were the verses from two weeks ago, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verses 20 through 23. All right? But let's start there. And while I was uh, speaking and praying, Daniel writes, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening, evening oblation. And again, uh, the man Gabriel is, is, is actually an angel who appears as a man to Daniel. And then he's caused to go quickly with this message and touch him about the time of the evening sacrifice. And again, there were no sacrifices in Babylon because they were in Babylon uh, at the time. But it was a reminder always of the time of prayer. And so uh, Daniel was praying. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. I've come to give you, you know, that great focus and understanding of what's taking place, what you're receiving. Uh, And then he says, At the beginning of thy supplications, In other words, at the beginning of your prayers, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. And so, here's what we talked about last time a lot, was about the prayers of the saints, that when we pray, that God many times answers us while we're praying. And this is what Daniel was receiving. The answer from the Lord, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. And i got to tell you, that's a very important thing that I did not touch a lot about. I'll touch more on in just a moment. 
For thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, <coughs> excuse me, and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. Take note, to finish the transgression, number one, and to make an end of sins, number two, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, number three, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, number four, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, that's five, and to anoint the most holy. And so, in our last study, we looked at verses 20 through 23 and the meeting between Daniel and Gabriel, the angel whom he had seen from the very beginning of the vision, who came to Daniel to bring him the answers to his prayer, even while he was still praying. It is in this meeting, now, now pay attention very carefully, it is in this meeting that Gabriel tells Daniel that he brings this answer to his prayer because he is greatly beloved. He is greatly beloved. Now, that isn't just a nice sentiment. It isn't just a nice thing to say, you know, to Daniel. It was meant with a lot of purpose. First of all, it was meant with a lot of love from God. But what he said is, you're greatly beloved. And think about that term when you think of an apostle. The apostle who wrote the book of Revelation. The apostle John was the beloved apostle of the Lord. And, I, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes in his gospel, never mentions his own name, but what does he say of himself? He says, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Isn't that interesting? This is such a significant matter because of the link that he now has with John the Apostle. And how often have we been in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel bringing forth the wisdom that crosses from one to the other and back, one giving uh, reference to the other, the other uh, giving us the, uh, the very uh, fulfillment of what is taking place or what has been uh, pro- prophesied by the other. <coughs> so he has this connection, this link with John the Apostle because they're both greatly loved. And I thought about that particular thought. I just thought about how wonderful it is to know And something that needs to be given and said to all those people who have no concern whatsoever for biblical prophecy. That God really wants us to understand biblical prophecy. And he cares about it so much that he would give... And and certainly there were others. I mean, there were certainly all the prophets and and other apostles that bring up the issues of prophecy throughout their letters. But two in particular who focus their attention on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord entrusted these two men with very similar revelations of the second coming of Jesus to pronounce in Scripture, 
to all men, Jew and Gentile, of the coming of the Lord Jesus. So now, where we were kind of at last week, and this is kind of the review for those who were here, but I'm slowing it down because I was like in overdrive last time, so I'm taking it easy. The key to understanding the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 9, is found right here in verse 24. It is important to state that the focus of Daniel's prayer has been the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And again, as I said last time, it is not the church. The focus is not the church. It is Israel and Jerusalem. And so the answer is not about the church, but about Israel and Jerusalem. It seems to, you know, it seems so simple. And yet many people really mess this prophecy up, adding confusion and seeking an understanding of end time events. Once again, we urge you to look carefully at all the news that is taking place in the world today. And the epicenter of the most uh, critical news that is taking place is in the Middle East. In particular, it is in the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes we say, well, I haven't heard much about it right now. Do we have to hear about it every day to know that every day something is happening that reflects uh, certain nations' desires to overtake that whole land for themselves? Does it have to be mentioned every day? We know every day that there are those who hate the nation of Israel, that hate the, the city of Jerusalem in the sense of the, you know, the Jewish people having it, and they want to take it for themselves and get rid of the Jewish people. We, you know, we don't have to talk about that every day. It's something we know. So, keep that in mind. So first of all, Daniel is told that the time period of this prophecy is 70 weeks and again, we're going back to review this, but literally, this would be 77s. Again, in the Hebrew, Shabim Shabuah, Shabim Shabuah, 77s is really what it says, 77s. And since Daniel had been considering God's program in terms of years, we have the support of Scripture to show that we're dealing with years. For example, Jeremiah 25, I'll go through this very quickly because we have been here already. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So we're talking about a seven-year period of time. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. There is also Second Chronicles 36 verse 21 that says to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. Remember, there were 70 years of Sabbaths that were not kept by the Jewish people. So if there were 70 years of Sabbaths, that would make the seven-year period, the period of time that they would go into their uh, chastisement, into the judgment that God is bringing upon them for that. For as long as she lay desolate, she keep Sabbath, or she kept Sabbath, to fulfill three score and ten years, which is 70 years. And as we mentioned also, 
and we're going to get into more of next week, hopefully with a little better voice. But what we're going to get into more next week, of course, is the understanding of the 490 years that this last section of chapter, uh, chapter 9 focuses our attention upon. So we'll get to that next time. So it would be natural then for Daniel to understand these sevens or these seventy-sevens as years. Now, uh, the Hebrew people thought in terms of seven always. Seven days in a week? Well, so do we. Seven days in a week. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year for them and so forth. So seventy-sevens brought them to the year of Jubilee. And so 77s is a span of 490 years. The 490 could not designate days. About one year for that would not be enough time for the events prophesied. The same would be true of 490 weeks of seven days, which is 3,430 days or about nine years. Also, if days were intended, one would expect Daniel to have had to have added of days after 77s as in Daniel chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, where it is literally written, three sevens of days. So when it's specific, then we can count it as days. But here where it's not, we have to look at the context as we gave you in Second Chronicles and in Jeremiah. So also since Israel and Judah had failed to keep the sabbatical years, every seventh year the land was to lie, to lie fallow or left alone. Leviticus 25. Throughout our history, the Lord enforced on the land 70 Sabbaths. Again, Leviticus 26. And so, 490 years were required to complete 70 sabbatical years with one occurring every seventh year. So, this span of time was decreed for Daniel's people. Daniel chapter 10, as we'll study later, but it says, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall Thy people. So who are Daniel's people? The people of Israel. In the latter days. Ah, in the latter days. What have we seen in our study of prophecy? We're living in the latter days. And then in uh, chapter 11, verse 14, And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. (coughs) Also, the robbers of thy people... Notice again, very specific, shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. Okay, so that's just establishing now who this prophecy is for and what it's all about. So now, what will the end of these 490 years bring to the nation of Israel? Now, that's an important question, so I want to ask it again. What will the end of the 490 years bring? to the nation of Israel. Well, we are told of those six events. Six events that will be accomplished which are directly related to Israel and God's program for them. And keep in mind that these events have not been completely fulfilled as yet and we'll see this as we go through these things. So the first one that we find is to finish the transgression. That's the first event that we find at the end of the 490 years. 
the Lord will bring an end to Israel's rebellion against him. Now, I'm going to give you a kind of a side teaching tonight on the first three events. Because in the first three events, if you'll notice, they are to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Think about that. In the first three events, God is going to deal with the end of sin. Now what has been plaguing man for thousands of years? Sin. But he becomes very specific. He says transgressions, sins, and iniquity. Now transgression by itself, the word transgression literally means to revolt or to rebel. To revolt or to rebel. Transgression, in a, in a very short definition, is sin that is against lawful authority. Transgression is a sin against lawful authority. So when we talk about transgressions, we are transgressing or we are sinning against or going against the law of God. That's a transgression. So if you're writing and taking notes, transgression is the defiance of sin. It is the defiance of sin. Man defying God's law. There's a lot of that going on today in the world. But unfortunately and painfully, there's a lot of that going on in the church. As if to say, well, the law, I mean, come on now, Jesus is all about grace. He's all about mercy. I don't want to disagree with you about that. But remember what Jesus said, why he came. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. It is the law, Paul teaches us, that has become our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Oh my goodness, the law. Read Psalm 19. Read Psalm 119. See how fast you can do that. It's all about law, trend, uh, law statutes, uh, edicts, and so, so on and so forth. Just everything that pertains to our lives as people created in the image of God, to live by those things. Secondly, okay, by the way, transgression is the, is the general history of the nation of Israel. You know, I mean, that's just, we just have to be honest. It is the general history of the nation of Israel. Every time God blessed them and he has them go on, they transgressed the law. You know, they, they, they went against, they defied his authority. They defied his law. And they got in trouble for it, and, and yet God still loves them and he's still dealing with them. Secondly is sins. Sins. You might say, well, is that the, just the general thing? Well, no, because sins has a definition as well. Sin, in the word in the Hebrew means just like it means in the Greek, missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. 
So as transgression is the defiance of sin, sin, missing the mark, is the deficiency, deficiency of sin. D-E-F-I-C-I-E-N-C-Y, the deficiency of sin. And simply what that means is falling short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. We fall short. Those of you who have ever done archery, you know, if you don't get your proper angle at shooting at the target, you know, your arrow is just going to miss the mark. Or if you just kind of wander around shooting arrows, you'll miss the mark. Some are trying to hit the, the target, but you see, we can't hit it on our own, can we? The Bible tells us we can't hit it. We fall short of the glory of God. Thank the Lord for Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord for, the, for Jesus. So, the third word mentioned is iniquity. And iniquity is the crookedness of human nature. It is the crookedness or the bentness, if you will, of human nature. So as transgression is the defiance of sin, or yeah, the defiance of sin, and missing the mark or sins is the deficiency of, of sin. Iniquity is the distortion of sin. The distortion of sin. And what I mean by that is, iniquity is distorting the image of God. Iniquity is distorting the image of God. Therefore, the, the very first uh, iniquity, if you will, is that of idolatry. And how strong is God against idolatry? Against us worshiping other gods? Just all you have to do is look at the Ten Commandments. And the first three have that focus. No other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt not make any graven image. <laughs> but we as, as human beings became pretty creative ourselves. Because we were not only idolatrous and distorting the image of God in that way, we also focused on our own pride. Pride is an issue of iniquity. Because as soon as we start focusing on self, we're no longer focusing on the image of God. And the sin, as it applies to Israel, of course, has to do with their continued attempts you know, to follow man's law or, or to follow rabbinical law or to follow the, you know, the, the Pharisees and become Pharisees. Well, that was all good intent. But look at where the Pharisees were when Jesus got to them. And he pointed them out. He says, you know, you, you, you know, on the outside you're beautiful, but in the inside you're just dead, whitewashed tombs. 
And then the third was hypocrisy, because that's what it led to. Pride leads to the hypocrisy, wearing the mask on the outside. All of that distorting the image of God. And what did God tell us? He created us in His image. Interesting, isn't it? And yet at Christ's return, to set up His millennial kingdom, at the end of the tribulation period, He is going to bind and confine sin. Praise the Lord. The people will be cleansed and the curse will be restrained. We're still having to deal with it right now, but we have a great God that we are, that we are to surrender ourselves to, that we are to completely give ourselves to. We are to trust with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He says, I'll get you through. I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So, We've come to finish the transgressions. I'll do this a little quickly because we started here uh, last time. But I'm not going to go as fast as I did. So the Lord's going to bring this end to Israel's rebellion and the defiance against him. And Ezekiel 39, 23-39 says, or Ezekiel 39, 23-29 says, And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Of course, we already defined that before in another passage. But because they trespassed against me. Now there, there's a transgression, the trespassing. And therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. (coughs) After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwell safely in their land, and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. We'll see that later as well. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land, and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Israel needs... To really thank the Lord for having that kind of mercy upon them. Because if any of us were God, we probably wouldn't, right? So we have a great, great God who loves them and has kept his covenant for them. So what this ultimately means is that Israel will turn back to God and repent of their ways and will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. For as Jesus told the nation of Israel in Matthew 23:39, he said, For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So the Jews will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and weep for what they have done to him, as we shall see very shortly. But now we might ask the question, has this already taken place? Well, for those Jews who have turned to Jesus, we can say yes. 
And Jews have come to Jesus, praise the Lord. And, and so for them, yes, it's taken place. But for the nation as a whole, we can safely say no. But by the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, we will see this come to pass. So remember that the 490 years will bring this to completion. By the way, we're not looking for 490 years from this point on. I better tell you that now, okay? That, that's why the breakdown of the 490 years is very important next week. So you've got to come back next week. We're, we're just waiting for the last seven. Okay, but, but anyway, just, I, was, I think I was scaring some of you. 490 years. 400 more. Yeah, 490 years. All right, boy, that sounded bad. All right. Secondly, to make an end to sin. To make an end to the deficiency of sin. We've said before that the word sin comes from that word to mean missing the mark. So God's standard is perfection, and we fall short of that mark. For the nation of Israel, it too speaks of missing the mark with their immorality and their idolatry. And yet we're told that God will put an end to their sins or seal them up, as it were. So we read in Romans 11, 26 and 27, So all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So what a tremendous covenant. And the fact of the matter is, when we came to Jesus, we fell under that great covenant. So we're so blessed, because now we are grafted in to his people. And that's another thing that we should rejoice in. Again, has this happened? Well, in a way, it has. Jesus' death on the cross not only paid the penalty for our sins, but for the whole world, including the Jews. But, much like much of the world, the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah and are still dead in their trespasses and sins. But for all who repent and come to Christ, including the Jews, their sins will be forgiven. And again, the fulfillment will take place at the end of the tribulation. Thirdly, to make reconciliation for iniquity. <coughs> this, of course, was accomplished at the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ, but will not be fully recognized until he returns. Now we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19 about reconciliation. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling, you know, bringing a certain uh, accounts to a close, in a proper close, and then in a way also buying back, reconciling is to buy back in a sense. So you've given us that ministry to bring others back to Christ, uh, to wit, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So he's given us that ministry of reconciliation to bring people back to him and to help settle their accounts properly before him. The nation of Israel will not fully recognize this until they call upon the one they pierced, Jesus Christ, which will be during the tribulation period and will reach its complete fulfillment during the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and the close of the tribulation period. I want you to consider Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 12, verses 9 through 14. And it shall come to pass in that day... And again, when we see that phrase, in that day, we've talked about this 
in our study of prophecy in general, in that day, speaking of that day or time of the day of the Lord, in that uh, it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. There can be no clearer uh, reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. I described this last week, that as God pours out his spirit on the nation of Israel, and they recognize what they have done, that they have crucified their Messiah, maybe not by their own hands, but by their rejection of him. It causes the nation to mourn over what they have done. I want to stop there, and I, and I want to remind you of, of what I think sometimes happens in our own country again. Uh, but in, in a lot of the world too because we've, we've gotten away from looking at the word of God we've, we've gotten away to try to find an easy believism an easy way to get to heaven an easy way to accept Christ as it were but there's something about repentance there's something about realizing what you have done in the sight of God that hurts him because he's a holy God and he's a righteous God and he has sought to bring us all to the understanding to the knowledge that he sent his only begotten son because he loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son Jesus that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and so, receiving Christ, when we see what, what we read in, in, in John chapter 1, to as many as received Him, receiving isn't just a matter of, of, of saying, okay, well, I said a prayer. That's enough. Well, I don't know about you, but I know this, when I was confronted by the Spirit of God, and I'm not speaking about myself only, but of many of you here, when confronted by the Spirit of God of our own sins, of our own lives lived for ourselves and not for God. Many times living for the devil and not for God. What it brings is a sorrow. It brings a sorrow that, that, that causes us to weep for our sins. How can we not weep if Jesus wept for us? If he wept for his people? If when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane awaiting that inevitability of going to the cross 
And he was in such tremendous pressure. Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press, or I should say the olive press. And that he began to sweat drops of blood on our behalf. We have to understand. Our sin did put Jesus on the cross. But praise the Lord that he was faithful. That after he died, he was put into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, just as he said, he rose from the dead. And to as many as believe him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. To as many as believe and trust in his name. Sin, it still causes us to mourn if we realize what we've done and to whom it has been done and in whose presence it's been done. And so this time of mourning, as it's mentioned here, is linked to the day when godly King Josiah, the last hope of the fading southern kingdom of Judah, was slain by Pharaoh Necho in the plain of Megiddo. That's how the people wept. You can read it in Second Chronicles 35. But we see the repentance of kings. David repented. We see the repentance of the prophets like Nathan and Daniel and of the priests like Levi. We also see the individuality and thus, instead of just an outward conformity to events, we see a sincere mourning over their condition and what they have done. One particular prayer is found in Hosea chapter 5, at the end of 5, end of first verse of, verse, of chapter 6. Hosea 5.15 says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. What what a beautiful statement that the prophet makes. In other words, repeating really the heart of God toward us. And you'll see how even God's hand in all of this, he's torn, but he will heal us. He takes us through the fire sometimes. He takes us through the storms sometimes. He takes us through the floods of this life sometimes. But to his people, he says, but I'll be with you through it all. Do you remember the lessons of the three Hebrew children in the fire here in the book of Daniel? Or Daniel himself in chapter 6 in the lion's den? Never alone. Well, yeah, there were lions in there. There could have been lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, didn't matter. God was with him. And maybe the lions just weren't kosher. So when did the Lord, let's get back seriously here. When did the Lord leave his place? When did he leave his place?
when did he when did he do that when he became flesh and dwelt among us and then we see him leave this place till Israel acknowledges their sin what was their sin their sin was the rejection of Jesus Christ the Messiah The prerequisite to his return is their repentance and their seeking that one whom they pierced. Once again, this will reach its completion and fulfillment at the end of the tribulation period. Now we move on to the third point, or the fourth point, I should say, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So he deals with sin. And then he brings in everlasting righteousness. Every day, we can turn on the news, we can read the newspapers, or even witness for ourselves the wickedness of this world. We've seen a lot of wickedness, haven't we, recently? I mean, almost on a daily basis, wickedness has raised its ugly head. It doesn't matter. And you know what? When you have TV that is 24 hours now, and news uh, groups or, or, or news stations or networks that are on 24 hours. If you just happen to be up at 1 o'clock because you can't sleep or whatever, and, and, you're, and, and you're getting ready to pray. I'm trying to, make this, I'm trying to make this good for you. You're getting ready to pray, but you've got to check the news. Maybe there's something that you need to pray for. Turn it on at 1 o'clock in the morning, and you're going to find that there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Why? Because where it's 1 o'clock here, it's, it's daylight in an, another country where they're shooting each other and killing each other and doing all kinds of other things. Wickedness doesn't stop. The enemy doesn't sleep. But praise God, our God doesn't sleep either. All right? But we can clearly see that righteousness is far from the people of this world. Again, sadly, sometimes even in the church and certainly in the nation of Israel, righteousness is far from some people as well. And it breaks my heart. It breaks our hearts when we find ourselves being unrighteous. And it should. The conviction of the Holy Spirit should stir our hearts up to get on our knees and get right with the Lord. But we can see the unrighteousness in the world. Israel, uh, I should say Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, calls man's righteousnesses, in particular the righteousness of the children of Israel, he calls it filthy rags. And that's putting it cleanly. You see, our righteousness today, for every believer in Jesus Christ, our righteousness is in Christ. He is our righteousness. And one day, Israel will recognize this truth and the earth will be filled with the righteousness of Christ as he rules and reigns in the kingdom age. But as the prophet Jeremiah has stated, and I want to bring this out in the open for you, 
Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. We know who that is. That's the Mashiach. That's Jesus. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Consider the words as well recorded by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 verse 21. He said, Thy people also shall be all righteous. Thy people shall be all righteous. I'd I'd underline that word all. That's a significant word here. Thy people shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. I'd underline forever. Because that, that is a period of time as far as we understand it. And then he calls him the branch of my planting. He calls him the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. He, may, he brings in everlasting righteousness. See, we go in our finite lives, even though Spiritually, we are changed forever. But in our daily life, in our daily walk, we go from faith to faith. We go from grace to grace. Sometimes we go from righteousness to righteousness. It's that in between, grace to grace. Are you getting a little picture here of that little in... You know, interim from grace to grace. I'd like to believe it was just like this, you know, you know, grace to grace to grace. Mercy to mercy to mercy, you know. It's, it's grace to grace to grace to grace. Because we know ourselves, don't we? We know what we face as still being in flesh. But praise God that every time we go, God's there. He said, I didn't leave you. If, there's this, if that little dip is, is you thinking I left you, uh-uh. You may have walked away from me, but I didn't walk away from you. That's how faithful our God is. But one day, His people shall all be righteous. And righteous is righteous. Not righteous, too righteous. Righteous, righteous, righteous. Righteous, righteous, righteous. Merciful, merciful, merciful. So with the Lord dwelling amongst the people, righteousness will permeate the land. And again, we see this spoken towards Israel. Although, it will encompass all people living during the kingdom age. Fifthly, to seal a vision and prophecy to seal a vision and prophecy. Two things 
can be considered in the sealing of the vision and the prophecy. And by the way, the word prophecy in our text is literally the word prophet. Prophet. P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Like the, like the p- person of the prophet. And, and that's literally the word there. So he's going to seal the vision and the prophet. And you might think, what does that mean? But again, two things have to be considered. First of all, to seal up. Velachtom in the Hebrew, velachtom. It means simply to finish or complete. To finish or complete. That is, to put an end to the necessity of any further revelations by completing the canon of Scripture and fulfilling prophecies which relate to Messiah, His person, His sacrifice, and the glory to follow. So the sealing then, in in one sense, is to finish or complete. No necessity any longer for any more revelation. It's all been given. But secondly, we need to understand sealing in this manner. The vision and the prophet will be sealed. That is, he will be accredited. Accredited or uh, because their final accomplishment has been reached in these events of blessing for God's earthly people. In other words, it is to give the seal of confirmation. It is the seal of confirmation to the prophet and his vision by fulfillment. What does that mean? It means that eventually unbelief will be silenced forever. Unbelief will be silenced forever. God's word will be acclaimed and praised universally. All of this will be accomplished when Christ sits on the throne of David to rule as king. And then the sixth point or the sixth event is to anoint the most holy. It is to anoint the most holy. And this phrase uses some significant Hebrew words. Mashach Kodesh Kodashim. Mashach, Kodesh, Kodashim. Mashach is the word for anoint, to anoint. Mashach. Well, what comes out of that word? Mashiach, the anointed one. And from that we get the word in English, Messiah. So, that's an important and significant Understanding of this particular event. Mashach, to anoint. Kodesh Kodashim is the Holy of Holies. Kodesh, Holy, Kodashim of Holies. Words ending in I am is plural, so the Holy of Holies. Kodesh Kodashim. Now, first of all, this this signifies consecrating the sanctuary after its pollution. Now, that's why Jesus comes to Jerusalem. This whole city has been polluted. 
And as beautiful as it is, when we go to Israel and we finally enter into the city of Jerusalem, and it's a beautiful thing when we enter in at a certain time of day when the sun shines on the city and, and, and it, just, it just glows, you know, it has this glow to it as it were. And you know how precious that place is to God. Nonetheless, I mean, it's a powder keg there. And everything has been polluted in a sense, spiritually. Though God is bringing the people back, there's reasons, of course. This is why we study prophecy and realize how is there going to be in Israel. Well, God brings his people back. If you want to read about the consecrating of the sanctuary because of uh, the pollution that has gone on in it by the Jews as well as by others, just read Ezekiel chapters 41 through 46. But primarily, what these words here to anoint the most holy points to the anointed one, the holy of holies himself. It is the consecrating and the sanctifying of the Holy One as he enters in to the city of Jerusalem and to the throne of David. By the way, not too many weeks ago in John chapter 2, we studied what Jesus said after he overturned the table of the money changers and they asked him, well, who do you think you are? Tell us who you are. And after, in, the, in the midst of that conversation, remember what Jesus said in verses 19 through 22. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He is not only the anointed one, he is the most holy. He is the holy of holies. To anoint also means to appoint to some special office. In this case, it is the consecration or appointment of our blessed Lord, the Holy One of Israel, to be prophet, priest, and king of all mankind. Jerusalem will be the place where all nations shall come. All nations. That has been the plan from the beginning. And so at the end of this 490-year period, these six events will be completed. This is the scope of the prophecy or an overview of verses 25 through 27, which we'll, we'll get to immediately next time. So we've seen the culmination of these events, and next time we will look into what will be taking place in between. I want to leave you with an exhortation as well as an encouragement.
I want to close in the book of Acts chapter 20. As David is, pre, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, <laughs> talking about David, the, king, uh, the throne of David. But as Paul is preparing to leave Ephesus, Miletus, and go on to Jerusalem, he makes a statement that I would hope that all of us would, would take to heart tonight as we consider, and, and there's no major tie-in to what we've studied, but I, I really want to get to the heart of why we need to study prophecy, why, why we need to tell people about Jesus, why we need to bring people to Christ. Still, because we're still living in the time of grace. We're still living in that time that God is extending His love to people but, but just listen to the words of Paul as, as he's telling his, 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 his brothers in Christ, the elders of the church of Ephesus. And I, I could read the whole thing, but I'm going to just sick, uh, touch specific things. When he talks about the ministry that he had, he said in verse 19, of Acts 20. He said, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. I'm just going to close out that phrase. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the line and weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, listen, don't stop preaching. Don't stop sharing. Don't stop evangelizing. Use the gifts God has given you. And then he's talking about going to Jerusalem, but people were trying to keep him from going. Oh, Paul, you can't go. They're going to arrest you. They're going to kill you. Whatever. You know, they they just kept trying to put this fear in him. But he says in verse 24, one of my favorite verses of Scripture, but none of these things move me. Are we being moved by the things in this world today? None of these things move me. I mean, sometimes I get a little bit perturbed. The flesh wants to, you know, take that TV and throw it out the window. You know, you hear what's going on in the world today. But when you stop and realize God is in control, none of these things move me. Neither count I myself, my life dear to myself. And here is where we need to come to grips with who we are in Christ. Paul said, neither count I my life dear. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. So that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He was going to Jerusalem to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And then he says of, of his ministry in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. But then he gives this warning. And listen, this is to the church to the leadership, to everyone. He says, Take heed, therefore, 
unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Folks, the church is not ours. It's his. The church is not ours to change, to make the way we want it to be. It is his. Just like it is his word that we are not to change. For I know this, he says, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. I mean, this is in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul is telling them, when I leave, people are going to come in. Grievous wolves entering in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, even among the leadership, to draw away disciples after them. Boy, does that happen a lot, you know. Trying to, you know, draw people to themselves. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. There's tears right there. There's tears that we need to cry when we realize how the church is being attacked today. And he says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to this word of grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. That's my blessing to you tonight. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Shall we stand? Well, we made it. I actually made it in time, and then I decided to go over time just for you. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for the love that you have shown us on a daily basis. In spite of us, Lord, in spite of the many times, Father, when we have failed and fallen short, or we defied your law, Oh, we distorted your truth. Yet, Lord, you make it clear to us that you're not going to leave us or abandon us. You're going to come after us. I appreciate that. I appreciate the way you do it. Because you're not just a merciful God and a gracious God, but you're an honest God and truth and just. And we're thankful for that. We ask you, Father, just to bless your word to our hearts and our minds. And as we prepare for the the next session, that, Lord, you will indeed prepare, Lord, everything that needs to be said. And then prepare our hearts to receive it, to study it, to rightly divide it, and to see how it fits in our day as we look for the coming of Jesus. Bless each person here tonight, Father, with safety and the way home. And their fellowship tonight as they stay for a little bit. And Lord, as they get prepared for their work or for school tomorrow, whatever they'll be doing, Father, just prepare their hearts to be light to this dark world, 
to be salt to this putrid earth. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.